as a kid from the streets of Compton, California, overcome poverty, racism, police brutality, inadequate access to healthcare resources, and go on to go to Harvard, Caltech, and then become a full professor of neurobiology at one of the top universities in the world, overcoming all that and then going further in a mission as if that wasn't enough. Today's guest, Professor Gentry Patrick, is going to tell you exactly how he did it. Gentry, my friend, my, my relative, uh, <laughs> it's so great to, right. to have you here. Uh, it's so great to have you here on the Into the Impossible podcast. It's always fun to have brilliant guests on the podcast, but it's even more fun when it's a dear friend and an innovative intellect like yourself. So thank you very much. I want to thank Thanks you for, for yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I thought we'd begin as a little teaser. I kind of see you as this, you know, as this action superhero <laughs> came out of, you know, some of the, some of the most challenging, shall we say, as a euphemism. Uh, locations of the world to become essentially the top of your game. And a lot of the things that we do on the Into the Impossible podcast is talk to the highest achievers that are, have achieved the, the greatest heights in their professions. And you are one of them. Thank you for including me. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's like, I feel like I'm the, you know, the drummer is what you call the guy who hangs out with musicians. Okay. I get all to right. hang out with professors. So first of all, what's your background? Right. What the heck is neurobiology? And how did you get out of Compton? You know, which is not usually considered, you know, one of the, one of the safest places in the world to grow up, uh, overcoming all those challenges that I mentioned. How did you get to where we are today? All right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a lot there. Let me see if I can do it succinctly and um, give you some of the salient aspects that really drove my trajectory to where I am today. Uh, I grew up in South Central LA, as, uh, as, as you just mentioned, um, Compton, California. My mom had me at 16 years old. Uh, so there are definitely a lot of challenges in my life for sure. But, um, you know, I was a curious kid. Uh, there were a lot of kids just like me who were very interested in doing well in school. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of serendipity and a lot of luck. You know? <laughs> and so what really needed to happen for me was getting on a path where I was able to um, take advantage of my interest in science. I think part of myself being a kind of a nerd mm -hmm. definitely helped me think about where I might want to go. I didn't know that I could be a scientist. I didn't know anything about neurobiology. Um, this was not a part of any experience anyone in my uh, family had had ever. Um, so even though I had lots of challenges and we can talk about some of the details there, you know, growing up in Compton is definitely challenges <laughs> of gangs and drugs and uh, lack of adequate, you know, education. But, you know, I did have a family uh, I did have people who cared about me. I had teachers that saw my potential and little um, sparks and little moments of mentorship uh, would push me, kind of guide me in the right direction as I you know, went on my own path. Um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, serendipity and luck played, like I said, played a, a lot of, uh, played a big role in my life, for instance. When it was time to go to college, this is a very funny story, and I would never tell anyone to do this. <laughs> you know, your kids are applying to college. I forgot that you had to pay for applications to go mm -hmm. to college. Mm -hmm. So it just so happened that when I was ready to apply to college, I had enough money to play for one school, <laughs> which is not the way to do it. <laughs> That's a sure better way to uh, maybe go to junior college first, which in this world today, right now, is yeah. not such a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, Luckily, I got into the one school I applied to, and that was Berkeley, and they took me. And so thank you to all those people on that admissions committee <laughs> <laughs> that took me in, um, because I don't know where my life would be if I had not started on that path. Now, getting to Berkeley, it was tough. Mm. You know, it was very tough. I actually had to uh, transition from a place where I kind of understood how to negotiate, navigate, and interact with people. I'm a people person, so that, you know, that was going to keep developing. But, you know, I got there. It was challenging. Uh, mm -hmm. The first two years, I didn't do very well in school. Uh, but really getting access to a lab. Um, here's another uh, funny serendipitous and kind of luck story. But, you know, luck is one thing. But taking advantage of the luck that is presented to you is another thing, right? That's right. Right. 
So um, I was working for the Employment Development Department. That probably would mean something to a lot of people right now. Mm-hmm. In the world. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it was a little summer job. More relevant than ever. <laughs> I had a little summer job. And um, what happened was my job was to give uh, summer jobs to young people for the summer. Mm. And that's when you know, I'd interview them and find, match them. What happened was that a job came through dishwashing for a local company, yeah, a biotech company in, in, the, um, in Bay Area. And I sent myself on that job and I got it. <laughs> and I, I knew I had to get in somewhere. And that really was the beginning, having stability, having a job, a permanent job. And taking the initiative too. Taking the initiative mm-hmm. to do that, literally sending myself on that mm-hmm. interview. And I got the job. And um, from there, I was able to you know, have some stability, um, gain a little bit more about my self-identity in STEM. I really didn't know that I was going to go to grad school. I was very interested in medicine. Yeah. Um, Eventually, I graduated, but got waitlisted everywhere in mm. med school. And mm-hmm. so what I did was uh, this two years program at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, which was called the research training program at that time. Took two minority students a year, very competitive to get in. And I got in. And from there, it was really, you know, it, I, was, I was on a path. I was speeding down the road to where I am now. With a lot of bumps still. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't an unimpeded right. uh, lane that I had. But some of the most important parts of my time was my advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they made a big impact in my life. Uh, I had three um, very, at the time, young women scientists who were powerhouses in the field they were in. Um, Aaron O'Shea, who's now the president of Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Li Wei Sai, who's a phenomenal neuroscientist, um, then at Harvard, where I went to grad school, and now is uh, director of the Pickerel Center at MIT, and uh, Aaron Schumann, um, who was at Caltech, where I did my postdoc. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's where we, we met. We crossed that's over right. There, we right? met and, and a mutual uh, friend, Cameron Deba. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, was able to, and then she moved to uh, Frankfurt. Germany, mm-hmm. uh, Max Planck director. They were all HHMI investigators. They all promoted me. They were not just mentors. They were amazing advocates. Mm. Um, and so there's just this turn, twist and turns of access and advocacy and mentorship, but also um, what I realized and why, you know, that statement that you started this with is really important because you have a lot of kids who have the potential. They're super smart. Um, they're maybe coming from underserved populations, but they have the goods to get it done. Uh, and they have an interest in their own well-being and their family's well-being, but it does have to be paired with, um, access Mm -hmm. and mentorship Mm -hmm. and, uh, advocacy. You could not go into a community and, uh, give a talk, you know, at an assembly, say in a junior middle school or high school elementary school and expect that a kid seeing you once it says that one moment in time where i met professor keating is going to drive me all the way to become a professor in astrophysics i would say you would need a few more uh, (laughs) moments especially with me especially with (laughs) not just with you but like (laughs) that that individual needs to be able to you know consistently consistently and so what happens a lot of kids they come to college but they're you know they're working and mm-hmm. you know uh, we need to really kind of think about what leveling the, the playing field really looks like does it mean we're choosing someone over another no we're actually making sure that the potential that is in an individual um, is really comes out and shines mm-hmm. that's all that is mm-hmm. right and so that was my life and uh when I got to UCSD, I was surprised that someone gave me a job, so I took it. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Don't tell our boss. Don't tell don't our tell boss. Our boss. Yeah, uh, exactly. And then find a replacement. Um, been here 16 years. Oh, I think I'm on my 10th PhD student. I had postdocs. Um, some of my, you know, they, they landed all different places, whether they be in, uh, faculty members. Uh, it's amazing. I can't believe now as a full professor my trajectory and I'm very humbled. Mm-hmm. I'm humbled by my experience. I'm humbled by the fact that individuals have wanted to spend their time with me. Mm-hmm. A grad student wants to spend five, six years with me. Mm-hmm. 
well, it's a mutual. That's right. It's a, a relationship. Mutual grit right. and grind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I I'm very pleased at um, the time that I've had here and what I've been able to do as a scientist, as a neuroscientist. Very funny story. Um, again, serendipity. And sorry if this is kind of oh, jumping okay. all over the place, but uh, my first, I did a master's with Erin O'Shea. Mm -hmm. She taught me what hard work was. So, and I'm sure she she would agree. <laughs> uh, she taught me what hard work was. Um, and I was working on a kinase called FO85 in the yeast. What's a kinase? It's an enzyme that attaches phosphate onto other molecules, mm -hmm. whether taking it from, uh, you know, typically ATP mm -hmm. uh, and attaching it to another molecule, which can change its structure and therefore its function. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and typically they're involved in cell signaling, whether that is involved in responses to stress or different metabolic states, or in, in the case of neurons, a variety of activity dependent things that are involved in things like learning and memory, as well as when synapses are dysfunctional, mm -hmm. things like uh, Alzheimer's and uh, other neurodegenerative diseases that alter a synapse function mm -hmm. and, um, and, and mental states and ability to function properly. Um, so what's funny is that I was working on a kinase in her lab, and when I got to Harvard, I worked on another kinase called CDK5, and it just so happened to be the functional homolog. Uh, so in yeast, and then I was working on the same kinase, so to speak. It does the same. In mammals, mammals right? Uh -huh. Okay. Um, I remember another. It's serendip funny. It's not. It's not hilarious yet, but uh, but I, I know you're getting there. Okay. I'm sure you're going to get to the biology part. That makes it <laughs> well, stand up. I stand up. Well, yeah. I mean, to me, that was. When I string it together, when I look back, okay, so it might not be that. It's serendipitous again. It is serendipitous. Yeah, there's a huge sure. role in your life. I've, I've noticed that about you. But the thing that's so uh, noteworthy about you, sorry to interrupt, no, that's it, right. is, is that you, you take advantage of the serendipity. It's like, right. you know, they say luck is when the prepared mind meets opportunity. And you, a lot of people might just be like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. But you right. were like, let me latch on to that, like a kinase on a protein, on an <laughs> and let me take full advantage of it. And right. a lot of people wouldn't. I don't know if I would. Yeah, you know, I think that was learning how to relinquish my fear, not not hold myself back by giving into the fear. Fear was always there, mm -hmm. right? I didn't know I could trust people. I walk into a room and as a scientist, as a neurobiologist, I'm probably the only black person in the room. But I didn't lean in with fear. I kind of came in thinking that, what brought us together was the science. I knew there were a lot of challenges and issues. For instance, there's an issue when you don't see other faculty of color at an institution in neuroscience or graduate students and undergrads. And we need to change that. Mm -hmm. The only way we're gonna change that is to be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, which is a good point, um, over the last four or five years, I've really thought a lot about that. Um, in the Division of Biological Sciences, I'm also the Director of Mentorship and Diversity. I also served as the associate director of the neuroscience graduate program, but in my diversity role, um, and I've always had to wear two hats, uh, run a lab, and I've also been very interested I want to ask in you about that. diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it has to be exists on the same page, right? Mm -hmm. Academic excellence and diversity cannot be divergent. They have to be seen as two things that go hand in Symbiotic, hand, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so by being successful, I've had a, a platform, mm -hmm. right? Um, and my success, again, I'm humble because I know that it's due to the hard work of people in my lab and we did together. Um, but, you know, that has allowed me to lend my voice to problems that need to be solved. And that is indeed um, when we need to do better. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Mm -hmm. Do better and make sure that kids from the inner city are learning that STEM can be for them. Mm -hmm. It's all around them in their world. Right. Right. Um, they're naturally curious. About they're naturally it. curious about it. You have to it. like work and, to make them. And they can about contribute it. to this also. Right. Uh, and, and take advantage of um, the joys of actually being involved in STEM. And, mm -hmm. and there's a variety of things that you can do in STEM, mm -hmm. of course, as, as you know. Um, and so I started a scholarship program. Mm -hmm. And how did I do that? I did that through um, a serendipitous walk. Mm -hmm. Right. 
I got on a plane and went across the country multiple times talking to people about my life. I share my story and then they find the, they find points where they, hey, maybe you might want to think about this. Hmm. And eventually things stuck. And I realized what I wanted to do was create a program that would basically, well, initially I used to say, I wanted to rival nepotism. We, we, can, <laughs> we can set that to the okay, side for now. That is and provocative. Then, and, yeah. and then, uh, and then um, uh, come back uh, to that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but indeed, what, what if you gave um, kids from the inner city, underserved populations, all access, mentors, um, experiences, research experiences, adequate um, finances so that they didn't have to work, um, people that help work on their self-identity, right? Mm-hmm. Can be prescriptive. It has to be something where they're buying in wholeheartedly. And you want those types of individuals. That's why you do the type of science you do, right? Because you feel it in your bones. It's right. part of you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of your so identity. Yeah. I, I love sharing that passion that I have in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it, just want to go back to what you said before, you know, you're doing this, uh, you know, you're full professor, you're running programs. And on top of that, which I barely have enough time to do what I do, it seems to me unfairly or not that you and, and other minority professors that we're blessed to have as colleagues here, you know, they have an extra tax. It's basically you get called upon not only to solve the problems of, of your scientific field, which is what you're trained in, but also solve a larger societal problem at large, which is how do we increase representation? And, and you know, to first approximation, if you want someone to solve those problems, you know, don't come consult a cosmologist. You know, it's not <laughs> in my wheelhouse, but I have friends, you know, my friend, right. Professor Stefan Alexander, president of the National Society of Black Physicists. Right. He's also always involved. Jim Gates, president of the APS elect. Come and see me figured out. Yeah, it seems like it seems like all all of you guys that are my friends, you you guys are superhuman and you have this preternatural ability to do stuff. But honestly, between us and you know thousands of people that are gonna watch this, is this a burden that that African Americans especially have to have to shoulder that maybe is not fair? And and is there a better way, you know, for allies, for whatever other people, whatever you want to call people like me, to step up and and really do a part so that you can also focus on the thing that God or whoever you want puts you on earth to do, which is your science. Right. In addition to the, to the, right. to the mentorship that you do. Right. Right. Um, uh, to be frank, it, it is unfair. Mm-hmm. Right. And you wonder why we do it. Mm-hmm. And you, you look, when you look at the people doing it, right. <laughs> the Jim Gates, the, uh, your friends, Stephon, on, uh, myself and others, it's like these people who are, pretty significantly, you know, they've done very well in their career, <laughs> but then they, they realize like, I could take this and leverage it to make change. Yeah. Um, I think well, you, you hit on something, right? And, and I think it's important in this time right now when we think about racism and the social unrest that is happening where um, it's not really a, a moment or a movement. This is like an awakening that we're having and hopefully more and more people have that awakening where they realize that they can contribute, whether that's a small amount or a large amount. First thing is really acknowledging the problem. And the problem is that there are inadequacies, there are systematic um, things in place that really prevent people, if we're going to say specifically in STEM, uh, underserved and uh, uh, underrepresented minority students, keeps them from actually having the access and going down this path. And we need to change that Mm -hmm. um i have been inundated and thank you Mm -hmm. to all my colleagues who've reached out sorry if i can't uh reply to all your emails (laughs) i i really am thankful that you've reached out to me um they know that where my heart is and what the passion that i have to do this work while also running my lab Mm -hmm. um so there needs to be resources Mm -hmm. um and there needs to be allies and i'm glad that uh, other faculty are stepping up faculty who aren't black and brown are stepping up uh, in ways to really contribute and show their um, kind of just leaning in to, 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 to deal with the problem, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have a, my, none of my mentors were black mm-hmm. or brown, mm-hmm. you know, white, mm-hmm. Asian. Mm-hmm. But they, they cared about me and they cared about where I could go and possibility of what my life could be. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they've impacted all the people that I've impacted. Mm-hmm. So 
leveraged, right? Yeah. So that's real leveraging, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if we think about this uh, in a simple way like that, you know, it's it's how do you affect change one person at a time, mm-hmm. right? And then and there's then, a lot of us. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then the question is, yeah, how do you get that lever and get maximum mechanical advantage to right. move the world, literally, as Archimedes would say? Uh, so question, I guess, next that I'm interested in is how much of this is nature for you versus nurture for you? So you were a curious kid. What was what was the nice. eight-year-old gentry like? Because uh, I know you. If I had to say, like, what are you? In addition to, like, scientists. So like, right. you and I have this in common. We're scientists. Like right. you do something I can't comprehend. I always say, you know, don't talk to me about what Gentry does. It's brain science. I just do rocket science, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but with you, I see you as another mo- modality of your persona is mentor slash um, leader. And then the other one is kind of like father, but it doesn't just mean of your children. And I feel like that's how we resonate as well. Uh, we have biological children. But we also have ideological children. And I guess my question for you is, what part of that comes from the eight-year-old gentry? You know, some kid out there watching this 12-year-old gentry. I know that age was very formative for me to become an astronomer. I was actually getting into astronomy at that age. What's your scientific world line, the path that got you here? And, and how much of it was was nature, just the way that whoever made you, you want to say, or how you were, you know, uh, programmed genetically versus how you were brought up right. uh, all the way up through your, your, your schooling? Okay. So, great question. Great question. Um, no one knows an eight-year-old as an eight-year-old that they're going to become a full professor <laughs> at a top-tier university. If they do. Like, there's a problem. Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, so, and even if you predicted that this person might be in the place to have the luck to do, you you just don't know. No, no one knows that they're going to show up here and do well. So. Um, it really is the experience that you have, your ability to deal with failure. Failure played a big part in my life, mm-hmm. right? Um, but also, I think what was really important uh, as a grad student was my ability just to get in the lab and, and just love my science. Just like, you know, it, I still had the other pressures and things that had to deal with my life with regards to you know, maybe being the only black graduate student or what have you. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I owned my science and it was, it was something that I contributed to. Um, and that kept me going. Yeah. Um, but when you really think about, you know, how do you get all these steps to where you are now? You know, it's being in a place to take advantage of, you know, not being afraid to say, okay, I'll go to this place. I'll take this job. Mm-hmm. It may be really, really tough and mm-hmm. competitive, but I'll, I'll, I'll go for it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we all have competitive nature and um, spirit. But, we, but for me, I learned to begin to have empathy for myself. And that spilled out into the realm of the interactions that I had. Mm-hmm. And for having empathy for others... And you may say, well, what does that, what does empathy have to do with your science trajectory? But it does have a lot to do with it because I, um, I learned how to uh, uh, really leverage that empathy to, to keep getting up every day. Mm-hmm. Or else I would have, you know, there's yeah. a lot of people who would leave. Just say, okay, 16 years, Gentry, and they haven't hired another neuroscientist <laughs> before, you know. Right, yeah. like, but, but things will change yeah. and things are changing. And Persistence. I, I guess I'm, I'm always the hopeful one. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, you know, there probably are others who might be a little bit more critical of the system. And I'm definitely can find the faults of where, where we are, even at UCSD and across mm-hmm. the country. But I have hope for a better day. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't look at my kids and say, wow, my kids are just going to have to deal with this crazy right. world mm-hmm. that we live in. I'm going to try to make it better for them. Yeah. Right. And so that's what drives me. Yeah. I see you as this, you know, relentlessly curious, incredibly passionate, upbeat, cheerful. And yeah, you're a realist. You're not just a pure starry eyed optimist. You know, you're like, there are problems in society there are right. systemic problems, but then, you know, the system is also made up of individuals and you look for the good in the individuals and you work to educate them in ways that they might not be aware. They might have blind spots. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah. That is a good point. I was, I want to make sure I bring up something. For me, um, the power of partnerships 
and the power of storytelling mm. will drive the innovative change that we need, yeah. not only in our science, but definitely in the realm of providing access, mentorship, and advocacy for those uh, coming from underserved populations. Right. Yeah. That is what we need. And mm -hmm. so when you are able to tell your story, right, mm -hmm. you know, some kid becomes a, a, a financier or Wall Street banker, not because he just walks in and they right. say, check these boxes. Now mm -hmm. they learn, right? They, they follow someone around. They, they, so in turn, our stories drive the next generation and we're helping these young kids build their own stories. And so that for me is if you ask anyone um, that, that knows me well, that's what drives me. Right. I think if you can only learn from people that look exactly like you, it's going to be hard to make a lot of progress because we can't learn all the lessons of people that lived, you know, in, in the Middle East in the 1400s. You just can't yeah. like say, oh, that doesn't look like me, so I can't do it. On the other hand, you do need to see that you there are need. people like you. Absolutely. That made, and, I, and I see that, you know, you see the famous president, President Obama, and he's meeting with a young uh, African-American kid. And the kid asks, can I touch your hair? And it's like one of the most iconic pictures of his presidency. Because he's like, this kid is physically embodying that he could someday be president as an African-American boy. And it's just like, gives me yeah, shivers there. That's a very powerful Speaking moment. Speaking <laughs> of watching. I remember as a kid, and this is like a, soft, a junior, senior in high school. about to roll out with my cousins and friends. And they were like, Gentry, you can't go with this tonight because we might get into something that, you know, I mean, some something had happened and they were like, there was some tension. And tension back in Compton back then was not just, <laughs> yeah. we're gonna sit down and we're gonna have a conversation. Right, chess match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, and so I had, I mean, this is very salient moment in my uh, memory for me. Gentry, you can't go with this because you're the smart one or you're the one that cares about all this science mm -hmm. stuff. We can't have you get caught up in this. Protecting you. So I have cousins and friends, mm -hmm. some of which who, you know, may be caught up in the penal system mm -hmm. that looked out for me, spared me the catching a case. If I had caught a case, as they call mm -hmm. it, right? I might not be here. Might not be here. Right. right. Take me back. Yeah, you're uh, in the in the uh, in the seventies, eighties, in, in Compton, growing up. You're a curious kid, nerdy, definitely nerdy. And so you got the nerd gene genetically because right. your parents weren't scientists, right? <laughs> uh, but you know, what was the environment like? What was the kind of milieu that you were involved with that gave you the work ethic and the integrity? What, what yeah. who or what was that? Well. As a young child, um, I, you know, my mom had me at 16 yeah. and I was living with my mom for many years before I moved with my dad. And actually my mom passed away quite young at 37, mm -hmm. uh, 37, 38 years old. And, um, but one of the things she instilled in me was, uh, just my love of education or my will to be you know, to get great, uh, great grades, to do well in school, to put myself in the best position to move forward and use as a, education as a means to, uh, whether you want to, in some cases, say a way out mm -hmm. or to leverage it to do something better with my life. And then in this case, when you look now, I'm full circle, circling mm -hmm. back to kind of feedback on the system mm -hmm. and impact others. Um, and so she would tell me, you know, you got to be smarter than anyone else in the room. Uh, and, you know, I loved school and I, I worked hard and um, I didn't have much TV. I think I got like 30 minutes of TV a, a, a day. I had to do workbooks all the time. She pushed me. But it's very interesting that a young mother like that would yeah. push their kid. And I was her only child yeah. um, to this to, to do something great. We both had no idea where I would go. <laughs> I could have gone straight to jail 10 years later, but <laughs> you know, I, I didn't and I kept pushing and um, I, I really, you know, those are some of the fond moments when I think back what gave me my strength and my grit mm -hmm. and it was the, it was that. But you have this grip and it wasn't like you had a chip on your shoulder or whatever. It's like, there was no resentment. It was, it was like, you're gonna maximize your vector Right. And what you're doing, and then you're going to pull people up with you. Right. Right. 
Um, at a very early age, we talked a little bit about empathy, right? Yeah. I learned that I learned that mentorship was really important, but I also learned how I actually had mentors that did not know they were my mentors, hmm. right? I was always absorbing the world around me, trying to books. Uh, reading books, mm -hmm. uh, interacting with people. When people would tell me their stories, I would jot things down and I would be listening intently because I was trying to figure out my own playbook to do something successful mm -hmm. with my life. Again, no idea that I would be here in this right, capacity, but um, that's what I tell students now. Mm -hmm. I'm like, everyone <clears throat> in a position, even someone that you think is probably contributing negatively to the space <laughs> around you, that you can still learn something from that experience, experience, even if it's just learning about yourself and how you deal with that, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, lessons of integrity and resilience and, and self-reliance. Absolutely. So um, going back to like the kids, and, and I want to take through kind of how you view the world as um, as a leader, as a as a CEO of a lab and of a project that we'll get to as we continue. But um, I want to take you on a, on a little story that I participated in last year. I was in Washington D.C. giving a talk at the uh, National Philosophical Society, which okay. is uh, in the Cosmos Club in Washington D.C. I had a couple hours to kill. And one of my friends is like, oh, you know, you've never been to the Holocaust Museum. Why don't you go to the National Holocaust Museum? I said, you know what? I've heard so many things about the African-American Museum yeah. of History and Culture. Let me go there. Right. And I had, you know, perfect timing. It's free. You know, you can't right, beat right. it. Lines weren't too bad. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> but, right. you know, I'm, I'm down there. I'm in the basement. I'm bawling. I'm right. like, I see the slave ships. I see the, the, the passage. Right. I see the, you know, these people that, you know, white people look like me, even though, you know, my relatives were in Eastern Europe, you know, right. at the time. But, um, and, and then, you know, so you're going on this emotional roller coaster downstairs. It's really just brutal gut wrenching. Uh, then you go up and it's like, um, there's, there's musicians, you know, get everything, yeah. you know, little Richard up to, you know, Beyonce and then, right. you know, and the influence on rock and roll and the blues. That's awesome. And then you go up, uh, you see, you know, Beyonce and whatever. And then you get up and you see comedians and you see, uh, Tuskegee Airmen, all these great, right. wonderful aspects right. of history and culture. But I'm like, where's the science exhibit? Where yeah. is it? Where is it in the African? And I'm like, what is that? Like if a gentry nowadays, a, a little yeah. eight year old gentry goes there. Or, or your daughters, what are they going to see? Is it going to inspire right. them to do, you know, a different brand? And I'm speaking now not as, you know, black versus white. I'm just saying science and culture yes. as a part yes. of culture. Where do you view a science and your science as a culture, part of the human culture and civilization experience? I think, you know, you know, I, as I mentioned, STEM is all around us. It's what allows us to exist, <laughs> right? And, and our ability to engage it. Um, but... I think that, um, you know, we have to find a way to partner. Like science can't be in a vacuum. It is not in a vacuum, as I just mentioned, but science and the arts, science and the community. Um, I think as faculty, as uh, institutions, academic and both, you know, uh, for-profit, non-profit, institutions of science and biotech what have you we all need to be figuring out ways where we are communicating mm -hmm. our science mm -hmm. to the world and to our community specifically in our own backyards right um wherever you are you should be able to relay why what you do and this is a good uh, mark of a, of a of a great um speaker right when they can deliver a message to anyone, whether they be eight years old or 85 uh, and suffering from some, from some mental lapse, right? Yeah. Uh, you should be able to uh, tell why you're interested in what you do, to some degree what you do, um, and what that means to the rest of the world, or else we're just doing it in a vacuum, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I do think that for, Kids of color, underserved, we need more um, showcase of the amazing scientists and talent pool from that are black and brown scientists across this country. You know there's a lot of us. Oh, yeah. It needs to be more, yeah. but the ones that exist, we need to also be able to step out of our labs and 
say, yeah, this is me and this is what I tell their story. A lot of times it's the rat race, right? You know, our, our community sometimes is built in a way that you're always chasing the next grant. You're always um, chasing the next paper. You never have a moment to just sit and, and exist and be with it. <laughs> right. You're always- You get scooped. Or else you get scooped. Right, right. And so I, I look for the day when science also learns where collaboration is just as important. I know in my career, I've had a lot of collaborators and it's been meaningful to my career where I've either learned something else or I've been a part of something that I thought was important um, as opposed to always pushing to be better than the next person, right? That's not what drives me. No. I, I love the inquiry of science and doing science but I love being able to share that story mm -hmm. and we need to be more storytellers. Yeah. And so that people, young people from any background, yeah. you know, Do you feel like scientists have an obligation. I mean, you know, you always hear this thing like, Oh, Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, you know, Bill Nye's not a real scientist, but, but nevertheless, <laughs> he's got some uh, funny things online though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's very good at what he does. But do you think that we as scientists have an yeah. obligation to, you know, take acting classes. I mean, when you just say like, oh, I'm just not good at it. I'm going to stay in the lab. Yeah. Well, the public's paying your salary, you know, yeah. at some level through their taxes or yeah. through their state salary. In our case, as you right. see uh, professors, do you feel like we have an obligation uh, to up our game or at least spend some amount of our time uh, devoting ourselves to outreach and, and improving ourselves in terms of the outreach to the community? If, absolutely. If you're not, if you are getting funds from, you know, the government, NIH, NSF, and any other yeah. governmental. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you're not just funding your own lab exclusively. Mm -hmm. And even if that were even the case, you, are, yeah. you need to be able to uh, communicate your findings to others and that passion that you have. We should be impacting the world and leaving something better. So, yes. Um, I do have a lot of colleagues who want to do that, but then there are some who could care less, yeah. right? And, you know, I, I always say we're always evolving. Yeah. <laughs> There's an evolution that's, being, that's taking place and in time and space right now that you're seeing that, right? Yeah. When you think about what's happening with the social unrest, I think people are saying, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. Um, and you can't, you can't silo yourself in you the lab. You can't silo yourself. Yeah. Right. You mentioned earlier, you brought up a word which I don't normally associate um, in this context with academia, although I do in other ways, like fear of missing out, uh, fear of uh, lack of credit, you know, attribution. You know, our, mm -hmm. We don't make profits, right, in what we do, but we get citations and things like that. Um, you mentioned like fear as kind of like, you know, like I heard Jamie um, Foxx once say, like, so like what, what's on the other side of fear? Nothing. Like, what, how do you approach that notion of you know, handling a very primal biological notion rooted in the neurons, you know, right. as we know better than what is fear? When I say fear, what does it mean to you? And what do you mean by it when you spoke about it earlier? Uh, quite simply, fear is a lack of empathy for yourself. Mm. That's what fear is to me. Um, when I can have empathy and just realize that I'm a human, that I'm a father, that I'm a professor, that I'm a mentor, that I'm a son, a, a son uh, that I'm a, a, um, a community member, um, that I'm one to, to do the right thing in a moment when someone might be in need. Uh, that, that empathy that allows me to exist in that um, allows the fear of the unknown to kind of just disappear right um we don't no one knows what tomorrow is going to bring no one knows what the next few hours will bring um but i think when we surround ourselves with like-minded people that care about similar things um that care about a better future and i know this may sound a little uh i don't know the word would be but uh kind of looking on the sunny side of everything, right? right? Yeah. Um, but sure. yeah, <laughs> but to be, to be honest, that's what I want to live, leave my two daughters. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want them growing up just angry and upset about <laughs> existing here. Right. I, you know, I, I want them to realize that they can take hold and, and, and have a future that they can um, make for themselves yeah. and, 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 
and exists with others. Yeah, yeah, very good. So um, you're about to hire a grad student. There's two grad students. They're equally, you know, GPA, GRE. I don't even know if you guys right. have GRE anymore. We're, we're trying to do away with it, but um, too, yes. whatever. Um, but you see, one is like uh, there's two different types of chess grandmasters. Uh, okay. One is is like can think like 50 moves ahead and just like foresees the future, kind of like strategically where he or she is going to get to go. And the other one's like more tactical, more broad, might know the philosophy, you know, like like opening moves and just kind of like, oh, I know in general, I want to recruit these tools. When you're looking at somebody to potentially hire as an employee, postdoc or whatever, a lab manager, are you looking for the broad, you know, kind of like, I understand biology, I understand neuroscience, I understand, or do you want someone who's a machine that can go deep, deep, deep where no one else can go before? Uh, and you can't say both, you know, because it's very rare you have both of those traits, right? The, the, the breadth and the Yeah, the choose one, right? Yeah. So like what appeals to you? Where, where do you see yourself? Are you a generalist? Are you the macro kind of person? Are you more micro and you like to drill down, focus and nerd out on the, on the most microscopic details? How, how do you approach it? And, and what do you look for in an employee? Right. So I would say I like to find the gaps where um, maybe two fields have not merged yet. Mm. So I do like detail, but I'm, I would consider myself more of a generalist. I'm, I'm a cell biologist who studies neurons and synapses and receptors, glutamate receptors, and their trafficking to and from the synapse. Um, so, you know, just so happens to be in neurons, but I could be studying receptors in another cell type, but it, I love, I learned to love the brain. And now I'm a, you know, full-fledged neuroscientist doing this type of work. But um, for me, the ability to be adaptable is really important, right? You may, so, I started using biochemistry and you know, to some degree imaging and then moved on to being able to use electrophysiology and uh, mouse models, what have you. I like bringing lots of techniques together to solve questions that may have been actually begun to be addressed in other fields or in other places and kind of usurping them and finding that overlap. Uh, so uh, that's what I did. As a, as a graduate student, leaving graduate school, going into my postdoc, um, no one was working on protein half-life control at the level that I wanted to look at. Um, and uh, I just brought two ideas together. This I went into a lab that had never worked on this. And I said, hey, you work on local protein synthesis. Would you be interested in protein degradation? And they're like, yeah, I didn't yeah. think, okay, maybe I should think about that. <laughs> right. um, today, that's a full field now, right? Um, but... I think for me, the graduate students, uh, I, I would hope that I'd have a mixture. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do this. A mixture of both, right? Okay. And the reason is All because, out, because you, you, you want that graduate student that can drill down and be with the level of rigor that actually takes you to the unknown where people may not have gone, right? Mm -hmm. But also that uh, breadth of being able to pull away, pull back out and say, hey, you know what? This may not be where we need to be. We may need to move into this other space right here. And adaptable and uh, definitely being able to deal with failure because they're going to fail 90% of the time. That 10% is what they're going to be putting on their walls. Right. Right? Speaking of failure, <laughs> I got a question for you. Um, so when I look back in my life, I see certain things that at the, at the time seemed catastrophic getting fired from Stanford University as a freshly minted postdoc being right. you know, first and foremost, uh, seemingly unrecoverable. But in my case, it led to, you know, great success. In fact, you know, you and I being here and you, you know, yeah. being partners with my, with my cousin, right? So these things would not have happened were it not for this failure that I experienced or what I thought was a failure. Have you had experiences like that where you, you know, stumbled, something happened, you tripped, maybe you let yourself down, maybe you let somebody else down. And, and then, but in the end, you wouldn't be the Gentry Patrick, the professor at UC San Diego without it, potentially. I've definitely had lots of failure. Um, and some of the things that come to mind for me are those things that, you know, if I had not picked myself up or not reached out or not figured out something in that particular time, 
we may not be here, right? We may not be filming this right now. Um, my first year after undergrad, I did very poorly and I did not set myself up well enough to even have a place to stay. So I literally became homeless for a couple of weeks, right? Couch sur surfing, getting vouchers from the county to stay in hotels. Uh, most people would not, you know, not guess that that is something that I experienced, but you know, all of these types of experiences actually we're like putting one layer of thin paint at a time and eventually form a brick. And that, I don't know how long that would take. <laughs> <I get> it, <laughs> but yeah. your foundation is that, there, right? Souffle, right? <laughs> your, your foundation is there. And so I wouldn't change any of that. But that was definitely a time when I didn't know that I could get up every day. I couldn't, day see, keep, I couldn't see the next move. Mm -hmm. um, but then I learned to persist, right? And persisting didn't mean banging on the same door. Sometimes it means it meant standing back and, and listening, looking, and trying to integrate where I am right now and where I might want to go. Mm -hmm. And that may be novel experiences that you might, you know, a problem that, that we deal with with regards to underserved black and brown students in STEM, a lot of times they don't trust yeah. the system, mm -hmm. right? And so um, th there's, there's, got, there's got to be a meeting somewhere Meeting other minds and and uh, uh, for me, you know, being able to persist was really important. What about your research is, has been most fascinating, surprising, maybe even influential uh, that you do that you would want to tell the world about? That's just is something that. You contributed to the corpus of human knowledge, and it's also incredibly fun and passionate and exciting. So what's excited me most in science is the aspect of time and space. What do That's I mean by that? Speaking my language. What do I mean by that? You know, um, become a cosmologist. Come on. <laughs> we need what do you. I mean by that? Um, I got fascinated by the fact that the central dogma, which dictates that DNA RNA goes to proteins. Proteins and RNA don't live forever, but proteins do a large majority of the work. These proteins that, um, in the case of the work that I do, since I study protein half-life control and protein homeostasis, um, uh, proteins have to get to a place where they function, and they're only there for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And I got fascinated by the fact that the half-life of the persistence population of a protein um, Basically, half-life is uh, the amount of protein that's left, 50%, um, and how much time it takes to get to that point. But uh, when you think about a neuron, about different cell types that have wildly different structures, a neuron has a cell body and these processes, dendrites and axons, um, and then specialized contact points like synapses, both pre- and postsynaptically. Um, proteins have to get there. They exist for a period of time. And then they had turned over. Mm -hmm. And I got really excited about the rules, the, the genetic rules that would be in play, the activity and experience-dependent rules, mm -hmm. like experience that that neuron has, the actual information that it receives, that controls the persistence of those proteins. And from there, I saw while that, why that was so important even to not only synapse function, and neuronal function, but it was also important for um, disease and disease uh, pathology, mm -hmm. um, the progression of disease. You may not know, but um, most diseases of the brain, neurogenic diseases, are diseases of altered protein homeostasis. Something mm -hmm. goes awry. The amount of protein that's being made or the amount of protein that's being degraded. Sometimes you degrade proteins because like in Alzheimer's, you know, you have toxic proteins build up as in also in Huntington's disease. And so I got very interested in time and space. And actually what we used to do and we still do to this day is monitor proteins in living cells and where they are, how they move and how long they persist. And so um, and then you take that and it's almost like an AND gate where you overlay the activity dependent rules which control their persistence in those places. Mm. We're still pushing on that front, but that to me 
excites me because it's a level of cell biology. It's a level of just the central dogma, you know, protein being made because of uh, a sequence of events that, you know, in some cases you might have a transcription factor, which mm -hmm. drives gene expression that might be out in distal dendrites of a, mm -hmm. of a neuron, but it gets a signal traffic, translocate back to the cell body, into the nucleus, activates something that then goes back and tags that set of specific synapses. It's all amazing that, you know, six billion nucleotides mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is dictating uh, a variety of specialized machines. So when I teach build one, I get excited about teaching build about biology one, it's the cell, mm -hmm. sorry. Um, but I'm always talking about 3D structure, <laughs> making sure that the kids realize that Protein X is not just a word on a page. It is a living, living, breathing thing that you can turn around and look Model at. It, yeah. And then for me to have that and then also know that it has to get to place X, mm -hmm. and it's only going to be there for a certain period of time. And so... Uh, on the brevity of life, right? Yeah, yeah. That's really amazing. I that's that's you. I, you, now you got me geeking out. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, <laughs> now the inner geek is coming out. I'm going to ask you some some pop questions because again, I don't have too many uh, too many deep thoughts in this in this realm of the brain. Um, uh, true or false? You can take supplements to prolong your cognitive uh, function, pro pro prohibit your cognitive decline. And you could say pass if you're not. I'm going to pass. Okay. On that. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, training your brain, cross-training your brain? Can you do crossword puzzles? Can you do uh, Sudoku? Do you do any – first of all, do you, do, do you take any supplements? Let me say This is not medical uh, advice. Out there. I, I take vitamins, yes. Uh -huh. okay. yeah. And what about exercise? Because you're, you're very fit. You love to hike. You love to fish. Yeah. You love to do all those things. But um, do you do stuff that um, notes between the – you know, taking care of your physical body improves your mental body. Your mental body, so to speak. Um, luckily, uh, your cousin and my partner <laughs> uh, is helping me find that connection to mindfulness. Ah, okay. Right? So mindfulness is really What's important. What's your routine? Tell me. Tell me your. Day we live stressful lives, you and I. Of course. <laughs> yeah. People think, oh, you know, you're tenured. Forget it. Your life is. Your we worries live are stressful over. lives. Our no, kids no, no. are always trying to, you know, put lock us in a dungeon. Right. Um, and then you know, between writing grants and running programs, I do so many different yeah. things. Um, you have to be able to find that calm in all of the sea of chaos. Mm. Uh, we exist. We love the chaos. Yeah. Right. We thrive. Right. We thrive right in it. Type, type, um, yeah. But uh, I've learned that I need to be able to bring myself back down and find a place of mindfulness that allows me to, I always try to go high level, but sometimes it's either not high enough, high level enough with regards to, okay, putting things in perspective, but also just knowing that we're human. Physio our physiology is linked in many cases to the stress and the response that we're um, engaging and how we're engaging so in the world. It's so interesting you say that because I was thinking back to what you said earlier about fear and like self-love, self-love, meditation, mindfulness, like self-care. I've had on some mindfulness experts like uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, MD, PhD at Brown University. I've had on um, people that are opposed to him, like Noam Chomsky, he's like, right, I don't right, meditate. Right, right, right. I'm like, don't you have this voice that just never stops in your head going, and, uh, yeah, and but, but to hear you say that and connecting like calming meditative thoughts are right. another tool to use against that foe, which is fear. In academics, we face so much fear, fear of rejection, fear of not getting promotion, tenure, not being cited. And people think it's just the easiest, you know, three-hour-a-week right. job in the world. It's not. It's not. <laughs> no, that's definitely not. But I, yeah, yeah. Go this ahead. is these yeah. are things. So what we haven't talked about is uh, the scholarship program I built. Yeah, right? I want to talk about and, that. Um, but these are some of the things that we implement there. Yeah, because it's not just about uh, like it's, yeah. it's, it's it's a meta skills networking, collaboration, but let, let's get into it. Let's talk about it. So uh, you run this past program, which right. you started in your 2019 convocation speech at UC San Diego, which is kind of like the you know, analog of a graduation speech, but at the beginning of a year, yeah. welcoming everybody. It's, it's so funny how few people know what a convocation speech is, but how many people know what a graduation speech is, which right. I assume right. you'll do many of those if you haven't already. But uh, in your convocation speech, you speak about these, these three different themes and you talk about, you know, kind of the access, the mentorship, the collaboration, the PATHS program. First of all, uh, it's co-sponsored, sponsored in part, UCSD Chan Zuckerberg uh, initiative. Right. Talk about that. How did you not only 
Uh, so we, we, we started at the beginning of the podcast talking a little bit about your vision and your mission mm -hmm. in life. I see this as like a part of being a salesmanship or a saleswoman. Right. You know, you have to do this as a scientist. It's not enough that you think you're brilliant or you have some great idea. It's never going to scale. It's never going to get out into the world. Right. How do you convince people to, to buy into your vision, not only with their hearts, because you're a very inspirational person. You know that. Um, and, and, and people really feel a, a, a force of gravity towards you. Um, and I'm a physicist, so I can say that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not enough because you have to get people to open their wallets. And right. how do you, how did you do that? How does it work with, okay. with Chan and Chan Zuckerberg? Is Priscilla Chan, Mark Zuckerberg, right. uh, founders of Facebook and uh, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Dr. Right. Priscilla Chan. Right, right, right. So to be honest, it all started really with people buying into my story and me selling them that I can make new stories out there and you give me a kid and I can help build that story, right? Uh, I've had donors who told me straight out, Gentry, we're supporting you and your vision. We hope you do it. We hope you don't fail. Uh, we hope you impact the lives of these young people, but we're buying into you. So I've evaluated my life in such a way and found the nuances, the salient, important, impactful things. I said, what did it take for me to be successful? And that's why it comes down to access, mentorship, and advocacy. And that's where I said, I want to build a, a scholarship program that puts all of that in there at an uber level that allows for these kids to really thrive. Um, and that's what it's doing. We're in our third cohort right now. And it's How many amazing. kids go through it? How many uh, we've take, we took the first two years, uh, 12 a year, mm -hmm. and now we took 15. Interestingly enough, you know, it's really gaining traction, right? So we had 50, 70 applicants first couple years. This past year, we had over 500 applications for 15 <laughs> spots. Did not realize that. Right. And these are the, some of the most impressive. I was uh, honored to impressive be one of the kids. first speakers right. in the, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. In first Absolutely. cohort. Thank you very much. And I just loved it. I wanted to stay with them for hours. They were finally like, we got to go. Uh, right. We got a Facebook check-in now. We got to do that. Uh, thanks, Professor Keith. But But let me come back to what you said. So the, the students are doing absolutely great. And I'll give you some of the details of what's in the program. Yeah, we'll put but links in the notes and everything, too. What's, what is it that allows someone to see that they can partner with you? Why would a venture philanthropist say, I see, I see it? And you say, well, Gentry, he's inspirational. Little note, no, I didn't tell you this. Uh, my father and all of his brothers uh, were and are ministers, yeah. right? <laughs> so speaking in front of large crowds, that's, we're good with that. That's one thing. <laughs> you have the word of God, you know, as your material, and it's up to the delivery, yeah. Exactly. I think I knew that about your dad. I didn't right. know that about your uncle. Yeah, so, exactly. Okay. Okay. No, my uncle has a big church, like <laughs> a, almost like a little a mega church in, in Houston. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. I got to check um, So uh, I think I lean in with such transparency, and I crystallized what exactly needs to happen. I'm like, there are many nonprofits. There are many programs. And they all kind of silo themselves. They don't all silo themselves. Let me reframe that. They can be siloed. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that the genius or the innovation would be to, if you're going to create another scholarship program, there exists many all over the right. You need to do something that doesn't facilitate siloing of your scholars, the program, and actually thrives and is driven by true partnership. Um, really, this came about pathways to STEM to enhance access and mentorship, otherwise known as the PATH Scholars Program, um, really came about because, um, and I'll get into some of the details of what it does, um, it came about because of my commitment to science. And you may say, what, does he mean? what do you mean by that? The fact that I had a platform, I was a leader in my field. Um, you know, as a teen, tenured professor, now full professor, uh, with advancement, you know, now. Um, uh, and the fact that I had just bought into this idea of science is my community, giving talks, 
all over the place every year and at meetings like Gordon Conference and Facet meetings. Even if I was the only black person, right? <laughs> I was there and I knew, and in many cases, I was like, I better get a, give a good talk. Right, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> another form of tax, right? You gotta <laughs> right, right. outperform. Um, when it was time to like do something like this, people didn't say, oh yeah, he has a great idea. They were like, he clearly has connected, you know, if he was able to trans, go on a trajectory from starting in inner city, South Central LA, Compton, California, going through all the ways he did, and if he wants to pull out those salient parts of what helped him be successful, I'll buy into that, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, obviously I can communicate that well to them, um, but that's how it started. I really, I went to, uh, with regards to Chan Zuckerberg, I, Corey Bargman, who I think she was voted like most influential or most important scientist of in some year, a couple years ago, mm-hmm. I think right when she became the CZI president of science, of science, mm-hmm. Corey Bargman, um, she's known me since I, my days at UCSF and she's followed my career. And in some cases she's been there to advocate and mentor me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I said, Hey, I'm going to start this new program. She said, hold on. We were just talking with, uh, Dr. Freeman Hrabowski, who's the president of Uni- university of Maryland, Baltimore County who's now a friend mm-hmm. yeah. and I look <clears throat> up to him very much. So he's a passionate speaker and author. You should definitely get him on your, yeah. uh, on no, your, I met him at the uh, convocation, <laughs> of that, um, right? Uh, so no, he was not at the convocation. Oh, Freeman Hrabowski is the, the president of UMBC no. and started the Meyerhoff Scholarship. The Meyer, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought that they were, he was, he didn't come out. Oh, okay. He's come out once. Yeah. He's like, Gentry, you yeah. guys work on it for five years and then I'll come get, out. We'll get out of here in January. Yeah, uh, you know, Baltimore's nice in the winter. Right, right, yeah, right. Um, gotta be. And so, again, serendipity, of course, because mm-hmm. that's how my life <laughs> that's works. Your life. But because I had a science footprint and a good one, I was able to leverage that to talk about how we can do more. And people were like, okay, I, I like this. Let's, let's. And then you get other people involved. And so what's great about this partnership is, is it's between Berkeley and UCSD, as well as UMBC and Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is funding all three to basically model what Meyerhoff had done. Mm-hmm. They are phenomenal in what they've done. And I've learned so much from they've 33 years now, I believe. Um, for instance, the Surgeon General is a Meyerhoff scholar. Mm-hmm. And they basically make a community. And this is what I was talking about. You know, you have these scholars that come from these places where they, you know, they show up on UCSD and it's quite different than their home, oh, yeah. right? And their community. And you know, they don't see, you know, they're not normally around people with opulent wealth or what have you. And so it's, they're thrown out of, out of, of a, into this context where they have to persist and not have imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, imposter syndrome never really goes away when right. you really think about it. It's a form of fear, right? Yeah. It's a form of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to persist and so uh, and trust the system. And so this is some of the things that we really want to do in our, um, we, we model after this program and uh, it's allowed us to be very successful. Um, we lean in with the transparency and allow our students to really allow us to go along ahead on their path and clear the way there's accountability a great amount of accountability community service there's graduate advocates we have a full staff three pro staff full-time people who run the program Mm -hmm. we have what's called graduate advocates who help take care of not only checking in with the students weekly but they're talking they're you know mindfulness how are you doing how's your health how's your mental health Mm self-care they're networking for them too networking Mm -hmm. Meeting faculty mm-hmm. like yourself, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been great. You can get a faculty member we'll, over lunch. We'll talk about themselves for an hour. Yeah. That's, you that's can, like, that's like the up. opening act for me. <laughs> Only an hour. Right, right. And so um, this program is, it's really been special to see evolve. Mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to have, you know, major funding come through. I think it's helping the it's a model program. Mm-hmm. So it's helping the campus to evolve and grow because especially when you think about the time that we're in right now, yeah. we have to really 
consider what are the best ways that we can do this and how are the partnerships driving uh, a better outcome for our black and brown students um, that are coming from these environments that are here on campus and dealing with, quite frankly, in many cases, uh, uh, racism and microaggressions uh, and not being able to deal with that or in some cases understand it, yeah. but how do we own our own community so that we can say, you know what, we can do better. And that starts with leadership. That starts with um, valuing uh, the faculty that we have. That starts with bringing more students in um, through the pipeline, right? And supporting them. It starts with innovative ideas to, to build within divisions, hubs and success centers that will allow, I think physical science has a success center now, yeah, right? I right. think biology, we're about to do something very similar. Mm -hmm. um, uh, with our with our own secret sauce, yep. just no, to say, right. <laughs> throw down division versus division, right? Um, so again, you we know, have the atom bomb. You guys have the bio weapon. Well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's see how it works out. So I'm really hopeful. Someone asked me, you know, do you have hope for the future? I mean, I mean, you could say, oh, there's fear, depending on what happens mm -hmm. in the near and short term or long term. But I think, I think um, when we own our own existence in our own community and we have empathy for the people around us, we can do something very special. Um, and that's whether you're an astrophysicist, cosmologist, uh, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a neuroscientist, yeah. whether you're a kid from Compton, California, um, who, and by the way, um, I love, I love, you know, being here at UCSD, I do know that um, uh, one day the things that I do here serve as a model to impact that world. I want to be able to go back to Compton one yeah. day and start something special and partner with great people, whether it be in the entertainment, yeah. you know, industry as well as the science. And there's a lot of innovation to be had to really do something special in that community. I can't wait to do that. There's nobody better suited than you, my friend. I cannot wait to see where you go next on the pathway <laughs> to greatness, not only for yourself, but for all these uh, students that you serve. I just want to thank you. So grateful uh, not only to be a friend, but to have you as a colleague. You're really a treasure. And I want to thank you for spending time with the Into the Impossible podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valco.